there's a growing uh, number of economists who are really examining this idea of GDP as a measure. When they talk about the economy grew by this percent or, or shrank by this percent, we're defining that using GDP. It fails to capture a lot of like what you talk about. How are people's lives actually going? Look at the fact that we've had basically GDP growth, steady GDP growth since the Great Depression. Man, the stock market has gone up steadily for decades at the same time that your average American has been suffering more and more. And so there's a good reason to start looking at different ways of measuring you know, success in the performance of the country. That is the voice of Ryan Reinbrandt, political science professor, Collin College. He joins me today to discuss well-being and the founding assumption of the U.S. Constitution. You are listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Professor Reinbrandt, welcome. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be here. You are the instructor of Texas politics and intro to American politics. You have also co-authored a textbook titled Practicing Texas Politics, and you've also published a paper, The Founding Assumption. Yes. What is the founding assumption? So the founding assumption, this paper was actually part of a, a larger project, a study grant that I received from Collin College to study the pursuit of happiness. And I approached that study from the beginning by looking at what did the founders of the United States mean by this unalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. And going into this research, I had no idea what I was going to find. It really came as a result of not knowing much about it. I'd been given kind of conflicting reports by professors over my life. You know, some said that Thomas Jefferson just included this as kind of a rhetorical flourish. It sounded good. Others had kind of more cynical views of why Jefferson included the pursuit of happiness and said, well, he just kind of stole life, liberty, and property from John Locke. And, and a lot of people in the United States didn't have property for which to fight. And so in order to get people behind this cause of independence that he just threw in pursuit of happiness, because anyone can pursue, pursue happiness. Um, none of these answers were really satisfactory. So I spent, you know, the better part of more than a year just reading what the founders of the United States wrote about, uh, about the pursuit of happiness and about happiness in their essays, in their um, debates, in their private letters to one another, all of these kinds of things. And uh, whenever I talk about this stuff, I like to start with a little disclaimer because we are grappling with the issue of race in this country. We're, we're grappling with the issue of women's rights. Uh, I like to acknowledge the fact that, you know, the founders of the United States were not perfect human beings. And, and we have to acknowledge the fact that they established a system that disenfranchised people of color, that disenfranchised women. Um, and so not all of their ideas should be adopted. They shouldn't be treated as, you know, uh, perfectly enlightened human beings or, or those types of things. But some of their ideas transcended their biases. Things like unalienable rights and political equality and political liberty, popular sovereignty and those types of things, these ideas have not only been you know, crucial to civil rights movements throughout United States history, drawing on these ideas, but movements in, uh, for liberty, for political equality across the globe. And so, yeah, before we get into talking about the founders, I want to make that clear. I actually mentioned I'm in the writing another book 
I had a publisher who was actually very angry at me for just for discussing the ideas of the founding generation. And they said, you're completely ignoring the issue of race. Everything that these men said should be thrown out. I'm certainly sensitive to that. Um, but again, these, there's a certain set of ideas that they held that I think are universal, that transcended their own biases. And, and I think the, this idea of unalienable rights, including the pursuit of happiness, is one of them. So yes, what I meant by the founding assumption. One of the things that I found that was so surprising to me was that every time, with very, very few exceptions, every time a member of that generation talked about the purpose of government or some of the language they used, the, you know, what government exists to do, it always came down to the happiness of the people. And I found that surprising because they talked a lot about liberty. They talked a lot about security. They talked about property. But every time it came to what is the purpose of government, it was the happiness of the people. They disagreed bitterly about everything from how this government should be structured, who should have rights, what kinds of rights, you know, slavery versus not slavery, uh, federalist versus anti-federalist. But the one thing they all seemed to share in common was this idea that governments exist for the happiness of the people. What is happiness? Because a lot of people have different views of what that means. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes happiness sometimes a really difficult concept to struggle with because everybody seems to have their own view of what happiness is. And generally these days when I ask, particularly Americans, what do you mean by happiness? It usually comes down to feeling good instead of bad, enjoying life. That's certainly a part of it. When I you know, read through the writings of the founding generation, and as you mentioned, their uh, intellectual forebears, particularly in the European Enlightenment, going all the way back to Greek philosophers, it's a much more nuanced idea than just feeling good, right? Of course, it does include enjoying life. It's hard to define a life without enjoyment as a happy one. Certainly, you know, uh, psychologists today uh, have do documented that, that enjoyment is a very important thing. It actually is good for your health. It's good for your immune system, um, that pleasurable experiences are important. But the problem with pleasure alone, and the founding generation recognized this, is that one, people adapt very quickly to pleasure. This is where we get things like drug addiction, sex addiction, gambling addiction, those types of things. The human being is wired to adapt to these things. The founding generation recognized that. They also gave warnings about not putting too much importance on pleasure because their concept of happiness also included what I categorize as fulfillment. So engaging in activities that you find purposeful and meaningful, whether that's in your job or volunteering, doing things in your community. And that's a different kind of happiness, right? Because, you know, I, I think of my father who volunteers in a children's hospital. That can be an emotionally very taxing thing to do, right? When you're doing good in, in the world, you're also going to witness a lot of suffering and a lot of heartache. And doing these things that help you find fulfillment are not always the most pleasurable things, but it's a really important part of living, you know, an overall happy life. So essentially what you're talking about is purpose. Yes. Purpose, but also the, the founding generation talked a lot about virtue, that living a virtuous life was an, an important component of happiness. And they, these are, we're not talking about kind of, you know, high flying ideals or, or rigid religious strictures, but when they talked about virtues, they listed things like, you know, humility, moderation, reality, all of these kinds of things that when we live a life in accordance with our values, we tend to be much happier than when we're living a life in violation of our values. And I want to also mention, you know, a lot of my research was also in the field of positive psychology. You're probably familiar with this, but a lot of people, when they hear that term, it sounds kind of new agey and fluffy and whatever. Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania several decades ago started making the argument that 
hey, psychology has been so focused on disease and dysfunction and the unhappy people. If we can study unhappy people, certainly we can study happy people who are thriving. And so this movement in positive psychology was the systematic scientific study of people who are happy and thriving and what leads to that. And that field of positive psychology, I found remarkable parallels between what they have to say about happiness, founding generation, and their intellectual forebears had to say about happiness. And so meaningful and purposeful activities leading to happiness, that's not just something that they were philosophizing about that way back when. We have solid scientific evidence that these days that that is actually the case, that people who engage in these kinds of activities or or live a life in accordance with their values live happier lives. And this is what your paper hits on, that they believe it was the government's role to facilitate this, which is very interesting. Does that take us into socialism, which is the, the boogeyman in the closet right now? How does that not take us into a socialist government? That's a great question. Yeah. And I think the important thing here also is when we talk about government facilitating well-being and happiness, happiness you know, according to the research, is an inside job. One of the most fundamental findings of positive psychology is that about 50% of your happiness is genetically determined. Um, so there are people who are naturally happier than others. You might win that you know, genetic lottery. 10% they find is, is due to life circumstances, the, the, the circumstances you face. About 40% of it is actually within your own control. It's how you react to the things going on in your life. It's the things that you do, how you take care of yourself and all of that kind of thing. And so in saying that government, the purpose of government is to facilitate the pursuit of happiness, it's not saying that government can make people happy or that government can make people unhappy, but that government can facilitate um, the pursuit of happiness or it can put roadblocks in the way of happiness. So we're not talking about a bunch of government programs pouring money into making people happy. It's more about how can we organize governance? How can we orient public policy towards facilitating people pursuing their own happiness and well-being? The U.S. is constantly being referred to as an experiment in democracy. That's why it's ongoing. Yes. A big part of that is discovering who is happy and who's not happy. Yeah. An important place to start, like you said, is figuring out who's happy and who's not, who's doing well and who's not. And and again, you know, maybe a better term than happiness is well-being. And that's, that's a term that psychologists use probably more often than happiness. There are a variety of really good measures. And this is beyond the theoretical now. Um, there are a variety of countries who are incorporating well-being measures into governance. Most strikingly is the, the kingdom of Bhutan, which has jettisoned traditional measures like GDP and, and those types of things that most countries rely on in favor of a measure they call gross national happiness. But that's the drive, the, what drives public policy in the kingdom of Bhutan, which has, you know, they collect data on things like psychological well-being, health, education, how people use their time, cultural diversity, resilience, good governments, community vitality, ecological diversity and resilience, living standards, all of these things that are now driving their public policy rather than focusing on GDP or military strength or those types of things. And, and Bhutan, fairly extreme example but this is also happening in countries like New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland are actively measuring these things and identifying who in their societies is, you know, has high levels of well-being, low levels of well-being. And we have had some measures in the United States, mostly from private institutions, the Gallup Healthways, which I think Healthways has now become ShareCare, but did a really extensive study of the United States and expanded it to a global study of well-being. 
And similarly, they were tapping to, into all these various aspects of well-being, you know, beyond things like how much money you make. And I think that's the important start is to start measuring these things. And then we can start having more substantive discussions about the kinds of public policies that might help raise the level of happiness and well-being in groups that are not experiencing high levels of happiness and well-being. I certainly echo the clarification, well-being versus happiness. Productivity. We want to make a positive contribution to society. Yes. And in fact, one of the strong findings on happiness and well-being is that happier people or people with higher levels of well-being tend to be more productive at work. They tend to be better workers. They miss fewer days of work. They tend to be more creative problem solvers, the kind of employee that you would want to have, the kind of boss that you would want to have. So in pushing for this idea of, of shifting America's goals away from things like GDP, military strength, those types of things towards the happiness and well-being of the people. Um, the research finds that happier people are better, better neighbors and citizens. They tend to be kinder. They, they tend to take care of each other better. Happier people, people with higher levels of well-being tend to be healthier. And so, you know, if you have a happier population, you have lower health care costs. You have less strain on the healthcare system. Happier people tend to take care of themselves better to be more resilient and independent, less dependent on outside influences to, to take care of themselves. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways in which improving levels of happiness and well-being can address a lot of the issues that you know, we're struggling with today. You and I had a, a private conversation earlier. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is you know, I've defined happiness as enjoying life, having meaning and fulfillment, uh, another one we get, didn't get a chance to talk about is relationship. That other aspect of happiness is having uh, healthy and meaningful relationships in your life. Well, when you look at people who are enjoying their life, who find fulfillment in their activities, who have healthy and, and meaningful relationships, these are not people who join extreme, extremist groups. The healthy, happy people don't go on shooting sprees. Um, healthy, happy people don't riot and loot. Healthy, happy people don't put their knee on the neck of another human being, right? And so I'm not saying that this will solve all of our problems, but if we really address these issues, if we address the well-being of police officers, if police officers are better taken care of, if they're happier, healthier, they have higher levels of well-being, they're going to be less reactive. They're going to be less violent in certain situations. This can help us address a lot of these issues in a different way than we've been trying to address them so far. There's far more to life than GDP but well-being, fulfillment, contribution to society, good citizens, virtue, positive relationships, being productive, even when it discomforts us, there's more things in life to be concerned with. And hopefully we can begin to move in that direction. A concluding statement in your paper is the founding generation shared near universally the assumption that governments exist to facilitate that pursuit and should be judged on their performance in doing so. And I think it's something that can overcome a lot of the uh, hyper-partisan divisions and a lot of the divisions inside of, in society if we um, reorient ourselves to how we judge our government and re really judge ourselves. Because I think, yeah, we, we get so divided over so many things in, in focusing on economic growth or, or military strength when these things tend to be so unrelated to the well-being of the people. Making this kind of shift in values and goals and measures can turn a lot of things around and I think cross a lot of divisions. One example of the way I think a shift in the goals and values can overcome a lot of things, we just had this presidential debate kind of universally recognized as a disgrace, mean-spirited, uncivil, 
the list of adjectives can go on and on. Our electoral system, the way we cast our votes, the way we run our elections contributes directly to that. I read an article that I think put it very well that America may have kind of invented democracy 1.0, the way you know everybody gets one vote and you divide the country into districts and you have one winner per district. Um, and we assume that that's just how democracy works. Well, a lot of places, you know, other democracies have instituted new kinds of voting systems, whether that's ranked choice voting or cumulative voting, multi-member districts, proportional rep- representation, those kinds of things. And what we find is that the way we have set up our system rewards the kind of behavior we're seeing right now. When you have a single member district, simple plurality system, the incentives are to tear down your opponent at all costs. Uh, We're the good side and they're the bad side as you can possibly get. And that helps win elections. Well, if you have a ranked choice voting system, you have an incentive as a politician to turn off, you know, the followers of other parties or other politicians, because in that election system, you might be their number two choice or their number three choice. And you have an incentive not to be kind of slashing and burning your way through the election and and turning people off. And so looking at things like our electoral system, well, how can we gear this more towards an idea of we're all in this together and the government is supposed to be facilitating our well-being, collectively our well-being, as many of us as possible, then we start looking at things like our electoral system differently and how we reform this and change this towards those kinds of goals. I watched the debates as well. A lot of people did find it to be an embarrassment to the nation. And I don't know that it helped anyone as far as understanding platforms and policies going forward. So a more civil process, I think we most of us would want that. One of the issues that we're facing in this nation is that we don't have shared facts and we end up in silos. What are your thoughts on the challenge we're facing concerning that in the United States? Yeah, I think that's very, very damaging to our collective well-being and to our individual well-being. The level of hatred and division, I believe, stems a lot from where we get our information and how we get our information. Look, there's never been a perfect time in the United States for, you know, media coverage, you know, perfectly objective. I mean, you go back to Thomas Jefferson and one of the newspapers said that if Thomas Jefferson's elected, murder, robbery, rape and incest will be openly taught in practice. That's not objective reporting. Right. And that's a couple hundred years ago. But we did have something of a golden age when there were a few, you know, a handful of uh, news outlets in golden age by, I mean, objective reporting because of the business model. Because they were broadcasting throughout the United States, the goal was to get as many American viewers as possible. Right? You don't interject your own opinion. You present them the facts, which is why Walter Cronkite for so long was considered the most trusted man in America, right? A religious figure or a political figure, the guy who read you the news. And it became national news when he actually voiced an opinion because it was so rare. He's out on the Vietnam War and, and Lyndon Johnson says, well, I've just, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the American people, right? So we did have this era where the incentive was objective reporting. For a lot of reasons, we don't need to idealize that era in the United States. But in terms of reporting and where people got their facts, it was very, very different. And cable news started to really change that, right? Because it became a different business model. Bias that you see, for example, in Fox News or on the right or MSNBC on the left is very purposeful because their goal is not to get as many Americans as possible. They want to corner, Fox wants to corner the conservative market. MSNBC wants to corner the liberal market. And so they're going to feed their audience a steady diet of here's why you're right and the other side is evil and stupid and misguided. 
right? And particularly opinion shows. Opinion shows exist to make you believe you're always right and the other side is always evil and stupid and misguided. More and more Americans started getting their news from those sources. Then came social media. I would recommend to anybody to watch the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which talks to some of the founders of these social media platforms and the people who helped design the social media platforms with good intentions for connecting people. But the algorithms that drive them, whether it's social media like Facebook or Twitter, or whether it's search engines like Google, they, again, are designed to feed you a steady diet of stuff that you agree with and kind of insulate you from ideas or, or facts that might challenge your perception of reality. And so that's really driving extremism and a lack of understanding of different people who believe differently than us. And that's a very dangerous situation to be in. And it's very damaging, again, to happiness and well-being. It makes you feel like you're constantly under threat. You're surrounded by evil and misguided people, you know, and it can drive particularly mentally or emotionally unstable people to do some terrible things. Once we think someone is evil, misguided or stupid, it gives us permission And that ends up producing all kinds of relationship issues. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And no, we're not at the point of where Nazi Germany got, but we are on a path heading in the direction of places like that, or you can look around the world at places that descended into violence. And a lot of it, as you said, is because of this kind of dehumanizing language and dehumanizing others, treating them as if, well, because they disagree with me or because they look differently or they worship differently than me, then they're evil. People are really prone to justify any treatment of somebody they consider evil or who don't recognize them as human beings. And that's a, a dangerous place to be. And that the kind of rhetoric we see is leading us in that direction. What do you expect to see? November the 3rd is not terribly far away. What are your expectations of the coming election here in the United States? I can't think of another time in, in U.S. history, and I'm not a historian, but I, I can't think of another time in U.S. history where the validity of the election itself has been so questioned. When you have one side laying the groundwork saying that this is all fraud, that it's going to be a scam, it's going to be a hoax if I lose. And you have another side that's very concerned. Liberals in this country feel like Republicans are engaged in a concerted effort to prevent people from voting. And I feel like if Donald Trump wins, there's going to be a lot of liberals who feel like the election was stolen. And if Joe Biden wins, there's clearly going to be a lot of Republicans who feel like the election was stolen. And that's a very dangerous place to be. The legitimacy of elections is kind of the fundamental factor in any democratic republic. You know, let's be clear, there's no such thing as a perfect election system. But to the best of our ability, if we can verify the votes that are counted, allow anyone who's eligible to vote, then the acceptance is an important, important part of a functioning democracy. My concern is uh, not only that it's being eroded, but that may lead to violence. If they feel like the election has genuinely been stolen, will they take up arms? I hate to be alarmist about talking about this, but there are a lot of people talking about this, analysts who kind of see the the country heading in that direction. So those are my concerns, particularly since it looks like we're going to have a lot of mail-in ballots that are going to take a while to be counted. And so we're not probably going to have a decision the morning after the election. And there's a lot of time in there for our leaders either to provide an example and encourage their leaders to have patience and to exhaust every avenue of verifying every ballot that's counted. And there's time for the opposite if our leaders choose to go in the opposite direction. You mentioned earlier that you are an optimistic person. I believe you. 
you certainly present that way to be optimistic. What are your hopes? I think we need to look also at what's going well in democracy uh, in the United States. So as a professor, I look at my students over the last several years are more engaged probably than they've ever been. They want to learn. They want to understand. And my students give me a lot of hope because they can discuss and debate hot button issues. And I have incredibly diverse classrooms, racially, religiously, economically, politically, and they can discuss and debate issues and not be disagreeable and work together well on projects that are somewhat challenging. And, and, and they give me a lot of hope. But also what's going right in democracy is we see these young people out in the streets. Well, protests are not a sign that democracy is failing. This thing is a sign that people are engaged and concerned and they're voicing their opinions. Now, there's a difference, of course, between rioting and peaceful protesting, but the fact that there are pro- is not, you know, is a hopeful sign for democracy. The fact that so many people are registering and, and want to get out and vote, that's a hopeful sign for democracy. Even the difficult discussions we have sometimes on social media, that's an important part of democracy. That's a hopeful sign that we're engaging and we're arguing. You know, those things can be very uncomfortable, but democracy is not supposed to be comfortable. You know, it's a peaceful way, a nonviolent way for us to work out our differences and to come to some policy agreements or disagreement. But all of these signs, I think, are good signs for a democracy. If people were staying at home and polishing their guns, now you got to be worried. Uh, the fact that people are engaging the level they have, they are, I think, is a good thing. And my hope is that kind of getting back to circling back to this idea of happiness and well-being being an inside job, one of my hopes is that we'll take a hard look at ourselves and we'll want to be better people ourselves. Approach things with that little bit of humility that compromise per se is not a bad thing. Compromise can go in in negative directions. This idea that I'm always right and the other side is always wrong and I'm the good one and they're evil and stupid, that's a level of ridiculous that we need to let go of. I have hope that people can and will do that. Um, I have hope that people value what we have in this country. You know, far from perfect, lots of problems, but we're incredibly blessed also. Professor Reinbrandt, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for dropping by. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Look forward to talking to you again. Ryan Reinbrandt, Professor of Political Science, Collin College. For more information on the U.S. Constitution and the founding assumption, visit academia.edu. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening.